Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Andrekos Varnava. We will be discussing his book, Assassination in Colonial Cyprus in 1934 and the Origins of Aoka, Reading the Archives Against the Grain, published in London by Anthem Press 2021. Professor Varnava is Professor of British Imperial and Colonial History in the College of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences at Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia. It's an honor to be in conversation with you today. Thank you, Ari. It's a pleasure to be with you. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your scholarly journey? Sure. I grew up in Melbourne. Um, in a Greek Cypriot family. Um, As an only child, I loved history from an early age. And when the opportunity came around at university, I developed uh, my interest in history even further and studied at Monash University, my undergraduate, and ended up doing a PhD at Melbourne University on um, the early period of British rule in Cyprus, uh, which turned out to be my first book published in 2009. And I've yeah continued my interest in presenting Cypriot history in, in as broad a context as, as possible. And, you know, we'll be talking about that in the context of this little book uh, today. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Well, let me start by saying that it was not my intention to write a book about this subject. My intention originally was to write an article. Um, When the article was completed, um, and and I'm sure we'll talk about the background to that, because that's its own story, but uh, it was a long article, uh, probably around the 15, 16,000 word mark. And and then, as I say, in the, I think in the acknowledgement section, I talk about how it had its own checkered history of rejection um, by several journals, even though um, there would be reviewers who accepted the article, there would be inevitably someone who would turn around and say, oh, this person, he's an anti-nationalist. Oh, he shouldn't be talking about this story or we shouldn't be learning about the fascism that was um, inherent within the nationalist movement and so forth and so on. And it's at that point where I began to run out of options for journals because of the restrictive word limits. And I thought, well, I could certainly expand upon this and and take it a lot further in different directions, which is what I did. And thanks to Anthem Press, it was picked up as a a monograph. 
the the message that I want to send, I mean, there are multiple messages in, in, in books that we write, but I suppose the ultimate message is that um, history is not what it may seem to be, that there are hidden histories. Um, I mean, this is a story that I didn't know about before I came across the migrated files list of uh, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office list, which had this as an entry and naturally a file titled assassination with the word assassination in it would, would pique anybody's curiosity, right? Uh, so, you know, the message is to, to not be, I suppose, uh, first of all, uh, accepting of the histories that you, you know, think you know, that there's more, that there might be more out there. And, you know, there's all sorts of messages which which we will come to, to talk about. What are the primary themes in your book? What story and stories does your book tell? Well, basically, the primary story is the assassination of Antonio Striandafilidis in January of 1934, a leading Cypriot politician and lawyer. And more broadly, the story is about me trying to, uh, I suppose, solve the case. Um, and in doing so, I broaden the story out because I'm saying that it's most likely that a group of far-right-wing nationalists who demanded that Cyprus be united to Greece under any, under you know, all costs, so to speak. Um, I broaden it out to show that they were that basically the the EOKA movement, which, well, not movement, but group that gets established later in the fifties, has its origins. Um, with these very same people who most likely assassinated Trianda Filidis in 1934. So the broader story is about the far right-wing nationalist movement in Cyprus and how it was violent right from the very beginning, really, of its uh, inception. What is your book's contribution to the legal history of Cyprus and the legal history of the British Empire? Well... Not a great deal has been written about the legal history of Cyprus under British rule. That's what I came to, to realise. Um, and in terms of the legal history of the British Empire, although a lot has been written, there haven't been, there aren't many examples of uh, assassinations, um, which, we, which we will come to, I suppose, um, later as well, if, if we get to it. Um, but my contribution is that there was a there was a case there was a, a person charged with the assassination of Triandafilidis, and um, the case fell apart, I suppose, in the court. Um, <clears throat> the British initially had suspected that it was the far right wing, you know, vestiges of the far right wing still in Cyprus. Because in 1931, uh, there had been demonstrations in Cyprus, uh, which led to the burning of government house and the um, exiling, so to speak, of certain persons that the British uh, deemed responsible. 
mainly people from the far-right nationalist uh, side, um, but not all of them. And they were still very active, particularly the ones in Athens, uh, especially those around the Bishop of uh, Kyrenia. And basically, the British initially thought that they were responsible and interned uh, a number of them in these isolated rural parts of Cyprus. But then at some point uh, later in 1934, they, they, they switch around to another theory, uh, which is a, the communist conspiracy theory that they took to the court, um, basically saying that the person accused was paid by the communists to assassinate Triandafilidis. And it all fell apart in the, in the court when witnesses basically stated that uh, he was paid by a far-right-wing nationalist, one of the people who had been initially interned. So from a, from a legal history point of view, it's quite an extraordinary situation. Uh, and, I mean, th the story and the book th doesn't have all of the answers. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, uh, conjecture and you know, why did the British go down the path of a communist conspiracy theory, which was contradicted by their own witnesses? So there's, yeah, a lot still to, I suppose, unpack. What does your research teach us about attitudes towards fascism and Nazism in interwar Cyprus? Well, as with any ideology, once it becomes established as fascism and Nazism did in the interwar period, particularly in the 30s, that it's going to um, attract followers pretty much anywhere in the world. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done, I think, on fascism and Nazism in the British Empire more generally. And this is just one example of how it manifested. Um, and in this particular case, we see it manifesting in the far right wing, uncompromising uh, uh, group that, in fact, had formed in 1929 and stipulated basically that it would um, stop, at, at, stop at no cost to bring about the union of Cyprus with Greece, Enosis. And it's no surprise, I think, that it adopted these attitudes, these uh, fascist Nazi attitudes and supported clearly, um, certainly we see in the, in, in the newspapers that were relevant to the case, um, referring to their support for Hitler. Can you comment on the evidence that your book provides regarding George Grivas's Savas Lysides' Achilles Kirus? and Archbishop Makarios's attitudes towards Nazism? Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the, these individuals were caught up... Well, first of all, they're all far-right-wing far individuals. They were all caught up in the Enosis idea. They also were very uh, much influenced by what was going on in Greece. So in interwar Greece, we you know, around the time of 
it ended up Philidis's assassination. And certainly once the Metaxas regime establishes itself, um, we we see a very strong far right wing uh, collection of uh, people basically in Greece. Um, and it's interesting that when the occupation of Greece during the war takes place, that that we begin to see that there is a sort of various groups of, of some of whom are, you know, driven by personality, but others in slight differences in their uh, ideology, some of whom collaborate with the Nazi occupation forces and, and, and others who are sort of on the sidelines of it. Now it's a lot of it's it's a lot of, I mean the role of Grievous and and the and Bishop later on, Archbishop Makarios who were in Greece during this period. Uh, Bishop Makarios had been exiled after the events of 1931. Grievous had been living in Greece from an earlier from an early age and had you know risen as risen some some somewhat in the ranks of the armed forces um clearly they were uh, sympathetic to the occupation of greece by the germans that they operated around the fringes grievous himself established the he organization designated by the x which in greek is the letter he uh, and we know that he had attempted to collaborate with the Germans, the German occupying forces during the war. And as the, as the war began to turn and the situation began to turn against the Germans in Greece, that increasingly becomes the case. And there are, you know, for example, uh, discussions and where the Germans allow leave Grievous's organization weapons and so forth and so on. So we're, we're, we're talking about some, you know, I would say nasty far right wing individuals who come to control in large part the idea for Enosis of Cyprus with Greece. Who was Antonios Triantafilidis? Can you introduce us to him? Can you tell us? about his life, his biography, and his legacy? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I didn't want the book to be a biography, but of course there's, uh, you know, there is a strong element of the biographical when you're writing about the assassination of an individual. Um, Triandafilidis came from a relatively, um, I would say, in, in, in you know, terms of Cyprus, wealthy family, prominent family, um, which goes back through, you know, 100 years and even more uh, in Cyprus and their prominent role in, in public life, political life. Um, he studied law in Athens. He returned to Cyprus um, around the time of the First World War and, in, and began to take an active involvement in public life. Um, for example, he is um, he accompanies Archbishop uh, Kirillos to London 
at, uh, in, just after World War One, uh, as part of a deputation calling upon the Union of Cyprus with Greece. He's involved in national politics, I would say, um, from that time on. He's a prolific writer in newspapers. Um, above all, at this point, he establishes his law firm, which quickly becomes one of the most sought-after law firms in Cyprus. Um, he plays an active role in politics during this early 1920s period. But it's not until later in the 20s that he decides to throw his hat more, I suppose, into the ring by running for the Legislative uh, Council, which was the elected body in Cyprus, which the British had uh, established in the early 1880s. And he ends up uh, winning the, uh, the election to represent um, the um, constituency that he ran for in Nicosia. However, his election was challenged by one of his opponents who accused him of um, basically using his wealth to buy votes. Triandafilidis uh, pointed out that, well, I mean, everybody else does it. So, you know, you're accusing me of doing what everybody else does. But he decided at that point that after it was decided to rerun the election, that he wouldn't he wouldn't run. Uh, simultaneously, the British had, after his election, had asked him to join the executive council, which probably is where more of the, uh, as the title of the council executive indicates, more of the power lay, and he had accepted that proposal, that offer. And that was, I think, a turning point because it triggered the right-wing nationalists against him. Now, when he ran for the legislature, he had been supported by the right-wing nationalists because they were in opposition to his main opponent. Uh, but now, once he accepted to join the executive council, they unleashed against him um, in, in both personal and political attacks. So he, so after this, uh, in, in 1931, we have the um, demonstrations that lead to the burning of government house. Those demonstrations uh, are important to understand uh, because they were originally largely driven by the, the impact of the Great Depression hitting Cyprus, because we see a lot of uh, attacks on farming and agrarian and warehouses and other things connected to agriculture taking place before the nationalists try to capitalise and try to galvanise against the British um, in a nationalist way calling for enosis. Triandafilidis at this point takes a back seat. He doesn't seem to be present or, or significantly a part of this other than to call for restraint. Um, and a number of people, as I say in the book, uh, state that they support him in this call for restraint. 
Anyway, 1931 happens and we see the British crackdown, the uh, constitution is suspended, the legislative council is suspended, people are sent abroad to exile, including for you know his his father-in-law, Triandafilidis, by this point is married. His father-in-law, Theophanis Theodotu, is one of the leading nationalists and arguably more, I suppose, on the, I would say more uncompromising than Triandafilidis is in terms of his demands for enosis. Father-in-law is exiled to and stays in the UK, in London. After these events, um, the British decide by in 1933 that, well, it's been almost two years. It's time to make another effort to bring the Cypriots into some form of at least advisory capacity, you know, of the government. Um, the governor at the time, Stubbs, um, with the approval of the colonial office, puts forward an idea for an advisory council, which would initially consist of the governor nominating the people who would sit on it. And what's very interesting is that uh, he states that he's not sure initially who will be on it, but he's sure that he wants one person on it. He's 100% certain that he wants Triandafilidis on it. And it's by this point in time, Triandafilidis has established himself as the leading lawyer in the country, the most sought after lawyer. He was represent, he represented the nationalists after the events of 1931, even though they were, you know, upset by the fact that he had called for, you know, calm and called for restraint. They still wanted him to represent them. He was uh, clearly of the view by this point in time that the only way that the Erosis uh, idea could uh, successfully uh, be prosecuted was by cooperation with the British. He realised that it was only the British that had the power to give Cyprus to Greece and that by taking the extreme violent line, whether whether through, I suppose, um, physical, I suppose, violence or whether not through non-cooperation and a more sort of Gandhi-esque violence, they wouldn't, it wouldn't, it would probably not work. And they would uh, be better off by cooperating with the British, by accepting the constitutional path that the British were interested in going back to, which the first step was clearly this advisory council. Now, once the council advisory council was announced and Triada Philidis had was, was was announced as being on it, again, it all, you know, this vitriol against him in particular uh, uh, resurfaces, both in Athenian newspapers in which we know that many the, the exiles from Cyprus were contributing to, but also in Cyprus as well. The other figures in the advisory council, they didn't have the same type of prominence that Triandafilidis did. He was really the, the only prominent figure to 
be on the advisory council. And, you know, as I say in the book, it met, it met once um, before he was assassinated. Uh, he had received threats um, and clearly, clearly that the threat was carried out. Can you tell us about Michalakis Trientifilides, Antonio's son? Who yes. is he and what does your research reveal and recontextualize about him? Well, all of Triantafilidis' three boys were prominent Cypriots in one way or another. Mihalagi is probably being the, the most prominent because he um, rose to the position of attorney general. This was, of course, many decades later. Uh, but he was a prominent Cypriot from even the 1950s when, as a young lawyer, he uh, represented um, Cypriots who were caught up, let's say, in accusations of being part of EOKA and uh in, you know, undertaking activities in the name of Eoka. But what's interesting about Michalagis Triandafilidis is that he took an interest in the assassination of his father. And he did some research into it. He clearly consulted certain files in the state archives of Cyprus, uh, files which, which I also consulted. He would not have had access to the migrate, so-called migrated files, which I accessed. But what's quite interesting is that, of course, he was able to also do, uh, you know, digging in a more, uh, you know, through oral history and through those sorts of discussions. And he was able to work out that it was uh, fanatics around the Bishop of Carinha, who were behind the assassination of his father. There's also the story of him being approached by the assassin um, while on a trip to the UK, where he reveals to him who was behind the assassination and, 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 and that, that, that he was, that he did it for, for, for money, uh, but he tells him who was was behind it all, and it all seems to match with the evidence that I that I present, but also, in fact, with the original British position of who was behind it all. What kinds of sources did you rely on in conducting this research? What challenges did you experience finding such sources, working with such sources, and interpreting such sources? Yeah, this was the real challenge of this uh, project, finding the sources and reading, I suppose, the sources. I mean, the whole project originates with the release um, of the British, of a list of files, uh, not just relating to Cyprus, um, relating to everywhere in the British Empire, of these so-called migrated files, of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office files, which basically several people have written on, um, relate to files that were removed at the time that the British left those places uh, and for whatever reason were considered sensitive. 
Um, and, you know, these files could be on any subject, really. And, and in some instances, you look at the list and you think, geez, this looks innocuous. Why would they remove this file? Quite obviously, though, a file with the, with the title assassination in it would be, by its very nature, a sensitive file. So when I discovered the list, um, the file in question, assassination of Antonio Striandafilidis, 1934, was closed for 100 years. It would therefore not have been opened until 2034, 10 years from now. So I needed that to get that file opened if I was going to do anything with this project. Mm -hmm. uh, and that in itself was a long uh, process, a long story of initial rejection. And then they opened the file, they redacted the file, and also they kept certain pages. And then I, I applied later on to have that change, to have the file completely opened with all of the pages, with no redactions. So it took years for that to happen. Meanwhile, I discovered a second file in which his name was spelt differently. Uh, so there's a tip for people listening to this. Um, especially when you're working with foreign names, the different multiple spellings that the British colonizers uh, used. And what was interesting is that the same document in that file, that file was completely opened, by the way, same file in that, same, sorry, document in that file was opened, but in the other file, it was redacted. So, you know, I was trying to make the point that, well, the, you redact, I can see what you've redacted, and it was interesting that it was entirely innocuous what was being redacted. In any event, the research doesn't, of course, just revolve around the specific files in relation to the case. That you, you've, you know, you've got to look at all of the files in connection with that period that might say something about the case. So all sorts of political files even files to do with other subjects should be looked at. Just the other day, this book is coming out in Greek at some point this year. And I was asked to write a brief introduction. And I said, well, can I talk about the fact that, um, you know, one of the projects that I'm looking at now is the uh, tobacco industry in Cyprus and during the British colonial period and the, I suppose, if you like, spreading of smoking and the habit of smoking in Cyprus. And I was looking at files in connection with, with that subject from this very same period. And you wouldn't believe it, but there was a document on Driandafilidis sitting in that file that uh, was just something that I wish I had at the time of writing this book, um, it really sort of just, I suppose, reinforces more of what I had written, though. It's, it doesn't really add, I suppose, anything new. But still, my point is that you need to search beyond the immediate files that you can see might be relevant. In this particular case, it wasn't just files in Cyprus, but also foreign office files that were very important because those who were initially accused and 
those that seemingly were behind the assassination were in Athens. So therefore we needed to, uh, I, I needed to consult foreign office files as well. And then there was the question of the, the, um, the newspapers and the, the importance of the newspapers first in connection with the assassination and how they reported the assassination, which was very, very, very important because it was giving me information that was not present in the uh, government records. And then secondly, for the trial. And the issue here is that the trial documents are lost. So the court records have been lost. So all that I had in connection with the trial was what the newspapers reported. And they reported on, I mean, it was just piles of pages on, on the trial from one to another newspaper. Um, so from that point of view, the detail was, was pretty thorough. Um, so the newspapers become part of this creation of an um, archive, a, a colonial archive. I can't remember how I term it, but um, that, be that becomes so necessary when trying to um, recreate colonial history. And then, of course, there is the issue of how these files are read. Um, and, of course, we all adopt... The, you know, we, 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 we all read our documents with and against the grain, um, or we should be. In this particular case, though, we're talking about an assassination, an unsolved case, a cold case that um, people had spread rumours about. Um, there was, the, as I discuss in the book, the rumours of the, 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 you know, that he was killed for personal reasons. Um, because of his his lifestyle and, and so forth. Um, but it becomes interesting that that particular narrative is created from, from the writings of folk in newspapers in Athens, uh, probably the people who were behind the assassination trying to divert attention from this as an assassination to this simply being, oh, he's murdered because of his, his lifestyle. So it becomes important to read these things against the grain. Um, those particular newspaper articles, in connection also with what, was, what I was finding in the official government records, indicated that there was this a very obvious effort to deflect from an assassination and to... Although say, oh yeah, we're better. Cyprus is better off with him dead. So clearly they had a motive to have him assassinated, but we didn't do it. Uh, but you could only come to this determination once you read the documents against the grain. What does your research teach us about the history of the city of Nicosia during the interwar years? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, one of the uh, things about British colonial colonialism is a very limited knowledge of cities uh, across the British Empire. And although it wasn't my intention to write a, uh, certainly not my intention to write a history of Nicosia, um, I think that by going into these 
into this subject and um, particularly the, not just the politics, but the crime aspect and looking at the person who seemingly probably killed him and part of the underworld being paid to, to do this, uh, having already been convicted of another very similar assassination attempt in that case, um, it gives us an indication of the how Nicosia had, you know, it was a hub of, you know, of politics, but also can, how it was connected to the underworld, um, how the how those who were, I suppose, also politically active, but on the fringes of politics, not the main leaders, how they were involved also in politics, in political activity, but also in criminal activity as well. So we we begin to put together a sort of more, rather than a stratified understanding of history, trying to bring it together, trying to show a more comprehensive picture of what uh, life might have been like um, in those times. How does your study recontextualize Greek history during the times of Eleftherios Venizelos and Ioannis Metaxas? How did these two leaders' policies and attitudes towards Cyprus differ? Yes, an interesting question. So Triandafilidis was a supporter of Venizelos. In Cyprus, the split between the Venizelists and the pro-royalist camp during the First World War was manifest. Um, the, the majority of political elites in Cyprus were pro-royalists. Pro the rejection of the British offer of Cyprus to Greece during the war um, did not really deter, I mean, it sort of, it, it, it made them less vocal, that's for sure, but it didn't deter them from being pro-royalist. Triandafilidis maintained a close uh, association with Venizelos and supported Venizelos. And in fact, his position after the events of 1931 certainly aligned with the position of Venizelos, which was that, well, you guys have ruined things, really. You've made a mess of it by, a, by burning government house down, by triggering this response from the British. And, and really, you need to start... Or from the from the beginning to re-establish your relationship with the British, and that was basically the position of Venizelos and the position of Triandafilidis. The opposite position was represented by the extreme far right, both in Cyprus and in Greece, and Medaxas represented that line in Greece. Um, but when it comes to power in thirty-five, Triandafilidis is already assassinated. And the sales of the, I suppose, the sales of the Enosis um, idea in Cyprus are at its most lowest position, lowest ebb. And um, but, however, in 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 Athens, in Greece, there is still a very strong review um, uh, from the exiles, in particular, a strong pro Enosis view, which they hold to, um, and Metaxas, I suppose. Um, as far as he could, supports supports that view, although there really isn't an opportunity to, to bring that forward to the British. Um, and, of course, Metaxas dies during the war. Um, but, you know, broadly, 
as he belonged to that far right wing in 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 Greek politics, um, they 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 survive. That idea survives, and the exiles take it up again, and and they're instrumental in spreading the Greek civil war and the far right wing ideas of he and uh, the you know the pro enosis at, at all costs back to to Cyprus in 1946-47. Who was Glafkos Kleridis? Can you tell us about him? So Glafkos Kleridis was a future president of Cyprus. Um, he was a prominent lawyer, like, uh, I suppose, Driandafilidis, but much later on. In Driandafilidis's time, it was Glafkos's father, who was, um, I suppose, <clears throat> um, involved in politics along with Driandafilidis, and that was John Gliridis, or Yanis Gliridis. And it's interesting, Yanis Gliridis is a figure that hasn't been discussed much in the literature. He ran for president in the first presidential elections against Archbishop Makarios, and Glavkos Gliridis, his son, supported Makarios. Nevertheless, Yanis Gliridis still polled over 30% in that election, which seems to me to be quite a substantial uh, percentage given the role that Makarios had played in Cypriot colonial politics and, and the fact that Gliridis Although seemingly, I would say he did play a substantial role. He didn't have this same type of um, status. John Glididis, I think, is an important figure that needs to be further studied. He was a figure who, like Triandafilidis, believed that the only way to achieve Enosis was to cooperate with the British and therefore the Cypriots needed to cultivate, to develop their relationship with the British and to rebuild that relationship, which had broken down as a result of the events of 1931. And he was involved throughout this entire period and into the 50s uh, in more or less trying to rebuild those relations, but within also within reason as well. Um, so, yes, a very important figure. Who was Neoptolemos Pascalis? Can you tell us about him? So Neoptolemos Pascalis is, a, is also a very important figure in these events um, because he is one of the few Cypriots who accepts a government position so, uh, of Solicitor General. And he, he this is in the late 20s, I think. Yes, in the late 20s, he accepts that position. He's quite close with Triandafilidis. And he's an influential figure. He is influential because he makes, he you know, he advises the government uh, in, on important matters, including the advisory council. He's part of that team that advises. Um, initially, when the assassination of Triandafilidis takes place, Pascalis and others, um, including the attorney general, um, the British Attorney General, um, it's Black, um, Blackall, basically, you know, immediately advised the governor, it's 
it's this far right wing uh, group connected to the Bishop of Carina. So that initial um, reaction it is aimed at them. They in turn their friends, let's say, in Cyprus. But then at some point during 1934, there is this switch to the communist conspiracy theory. What's interesting is that um, I don't, I, I'm not, I can only speculate as to why they go down that path and the involvement of Baskhalis. I mean, he must have been thoroughly involved in that switch. And uh, one has to assume that they knew that it would, you know, falter in the courts when their own witnesses contradicted it. Um, perhaps that's why the hesitation to go through with it. But why they did not go through with, I suppose, uh, uh, the case that supported their own evidence, that it was a far right wing conspiracy, indicates to me that the only thing I can think of is that they were trying to protect the far right wing for some reason or another. And Boschalis must have been immersed in that. What does this study teach us about the history of the Orthodox Church in Cyprus? Well, it teaches us that um, the Orthodox Church by this point in time had certainly been thoroughly immersed in nationalist politics and that a, and that a part of it, not all of it, but a part of it, was uh, a, had adopted a violent path towards achieving enosis and that this was... This, this revolved around the Bishop of Carina at the time, who was exiled after 1931, but continued these activities in Athens. Um, and that despite efforts in Cyprus um, to normalize this, the relationship with the British, that he managed to prevent that from happening. Uh, the island consisted of three bishops and two of them had been exiled as a result of the events of 1931. Soon thereafter, the Archbishop died. So there was a period of ooh, around 15 years where the country did not have an Archbishop, that the remaining sole Bishop, Bishop of Paphos, served in the role of Archbishop as, uh, as locum tenens, it's title given. Um, but basically, he, was, he had been prevented by the Bishop of Carina from holding elections, even though the church canons did allow for such an election to take place because the bishops had, those other two bishops could not execute their duties to their flock because they had been exiled. There should have been an election. And that's what many people within the church and outside the church, the legal advice outside as well, which Triandafilidis led and another reason why they hated him was that an election should take place to replace the bishops and eventually to to elect an archbishop so that never happened uh and um what eventually occurred was that after the second world war the british decide that the lesser of the two evils in the context of the nationalist politics in Cyprus, that is between the far right and the communists, is the far right. So they lifted the ban on 
the far-right exiles, allowed them to return to Cyprus. They, uh, and, and they also allowed for the election of an arch, the Archbishop and Bishop Leondios, who was the acting Archbishop during that period, was elected Archbishop. And this is another uh, part of the book um, where I said that I had expanded upon that, you know, initial article because it becomes uh, obvious that the far right is probably involved in his demise. Um, I grew up with stories of the, the you know, whatever, 40-day archbishop, that it's likely that he was, um, that his death was not due, let's say, to natural circumstances. Um, and given some of the evidence that I present, given the opportunity, given the motives, it's possible that the same people who were behind the assassination of Driandafilidis may well have been behind the assassination of Leondios as well. And we can see that part of that evidence is how quickly the far right stepped in and took over the archbishop's offices and very soon moved on to the election of Makarios himself, the Bishop of Kyrenia as Archbishop. Who was Savas? Um, who was Savas Loisides? Can you tell us yes. about him and his importance? So he is most likely the key figure behind the assassination of Triandafilidis, along with the Bishop of Kyrenia. Um, he is the Bishop of Kyrenia's right-hand man. He's a journalist, um, trained as a lawyer, primarily operates as a journalist. In 1929, he's instrumental in the uh, establishment of the far right-wing party um, in Cyprus, which I discuss, and which adopts Enosis and, you know, uh, as their policy at all costs and willing to use violence in order to achieve it. Um, and also planning to uh, have plans to um, attack Cypriots who work with the British. He is the one who, after Triandafilidis accepts the invitation to join the Executive Council, he's the most prominent person who attacks Triandafilidis. Um, and then in 1931, he is amongst those who is exiled. And he eventually establishes himself, along with the Bishop of Kyrenia and several others close to them in Athens. And using his contacts in the world of journalism, he is the leading figure in the Cypriots there, publishing in uh, right-wing nationalist newspapers there, and it's most likely that the articles talking about Triandafilidis after his assassination, it's most likely that they were written by Savas Loisidis. Um, he stays after this time, after the assassination, after things quieten down, he, he sort of himself <clears throat> um, has a sort of period of where he is quiet in terms of what goes on in Cyprus. Um, He's 
um, role during the Second World War is not entirely clear, though some evidence suggests that he was a collaborator. Uh, he remained close with the Bishop of Carinia, which indicates again that he that he too was close to the collaborationist regime. And there is other evidence of to show that as well. And then after the war, they are rehabilitated uh, once the Cold War really begins and they are allowed to return to Cyprus. Yeah. And then we have the um, demise of Leondios, which, which I discussed. And then in 1951, the formation of Eoka. And Savas Loisidis is the leading figure in behind the formation of Eoka. So that gives us that continuation, that link back to the assassination of Triandafilidis. Um, Savas Loisidis continues to remain very prominent behind the scenes in Eoka, hiding behind the fact that he, in the early 50s, decides to run for parliament for the right-wing uh, ERE party in Greece. And he becomes, I suppose, their leading, um, well, aside from the foreign minister, of course, and the folk within the foreign ministry, but he becomes one of their leading figures to talk about Cypriot affairs, particularly in the United Nations. And as I say in the book, um, he gives this speech in the United Nations in which he basically rejects any any form of compromise other than the union of Cyprus with Greece. Um, and, at, and it's at that point when, when Greece begins to talk to the Turks about independence, this is in 1958, towards the end of 58, that we begin to see Loisidis sidelined. But he's clearly uh, the figure behind, most likely behind the assassination of Triandafilidis and a very important figure in, in the formation of Eoka. Who was Dr. Miltiadis Kurias? Can you elaborate on him and his importance? Well, Miltiadis Kurias uh, is, a, is a sort of... And his role in all of this is very unclear. He was a leading medical practitioner in Nicosia. After the First World War, he's one of the medics who signs a document to say that he will not involve himself in politics, which was something that the British forced the medics to sign. Um, he is clearly involved in, even in a limited way during the interwar period, perhaps more obviously after the war, in far-right-wing nationalist politics. He was one of the doctors on the scene when Driandafilidis, you know, is 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 shot and, and, and taken to, to a clinic. The other figure that's whose role in all of this is very unclear is Themistocles Dervis, the mayor of Nicosia, himself a doctor. He is considered during the 30s as the pro-British mayor of Nicosia. Uh, but after the, after the Second World War, he, is, he becomes the leader of the right-wing group, which eventually, in, uh, I suppose, 
incorporates isn't the right term, but basically they are cooperating with the far, the more far right wing elements in the nationalist movement in Cyprus, the ones around he and the formation of he, the he organization in Cyprus. His role in all of this is very unclear. He writes to the British in the aftermath of the assassination of Triandafilidis on a number of occasions to express his concerns that his own safety is being threatened. But at the same time, we are not sure about his role or the role of Miltiadis Kureas in the treatment of Triandafilidis after he was shot. There is uh, some evidence also presented by Triandafilidis' son, Michalagis, that his treatment was not uh, sufficient, that he, that perhaps he was, um, that either they, they either deliberately or accidentally made mistakes. There was clearly a delay in uh, operating on Driandafilidis. They were searching for the bullet using uh, X-ray and that delayed things significantly. Uh, when the surgery occurred, uh, he soon thereafter deteriorated very rapidly to, to his death. And we're not sure about the role, roles here of Kureas and Dervis. But as I said, they do res they, they surface again. Well, Dervis never is away from the politi politics, but after the war, they surface very closely with the he organization. So also they are linked with the... Um, with the, let's say, illness, in inverted commas, of Leondios and his death. They're there as well. They're part of the team that's treating him. So it's, again, um, very shady. What does your book teach us about the history of the Cypriot underworld? That there was one, um, and nobody has really written about it, and that um, looking into the broader context of un the underworlds, that, they, that there were in the British Empire, and there's a whole area of research just waiting for someone to um, explore further. It won't be me, but um, I've done a little bit here to touch upon the fact that there was an underworld, that there clearly was uh, a political uh, link, that there were efforts to assassinate individuals who were working for or who were cooperating with the British. Um, basically, I just touched the surface of it, though. Who is Piros Giannopoulou Ipurutu? Can you describe him and his importance? So he was a, a journalist in Greece who is important in the context of the story because he, um, he ends up being one of the very few to actually write about it um, later on in the 50s. He is, his politics is all sort of all over the place, but eventually he, he veers very far to the right um, and has clearly got very close with figures like the Bishop of Carina and, and Sabas Loisidis and others. And basically I use some of what he says in connection with the Triandafilidis case to highlight 
or to reinforce um, my theory that the far right was behind it. In this particular case, or in this with this particular evidence, I mean, one of the things that the far right did, and and again, I used also Savas Loisilis's memoirs here. They they are showing off their what you know their achievements. They don't go as far as far as to say, look, we we were behind this, but they but they they're clearly not afraid to talk about their act their activities otherwise, which um, leads one to see that they were in the first instance um, happy that Drenda Felidis was was removed from from the scene in this way, um, and therefore. You know, we, reading it against the grain, we can see that they had su substantial motive. Can you describe the proceedings of the trial of Stavros Christodoulou? Yeah, the trial was a, you know, gripped the country really. Basically, about twelve months after the assassination, Stavros Christodoulou was charged with murder at uh, the assassination. The line of the prosecution was that he was paid by the communists to kill, to assassinate Triandafilidis because Triandafilidis apparently refused to represent them in the aftermath of the 1931 events, uh, which is a pretty, um, you know, thin line to take. The communists were, by this point in time, thoroughly suppressed. They... Um, where would they have gotten the money to pay Christodoulou? Um, when Christodoulou apparently met Mikhailagis Triandafilidis many decades later and told him that he was paid by the Bishop of Kerenia a thousand pounds, well, where would the communists have gotten a thousand pounds in 1934? Why would they have waited um, over, over, th over two years to assassinate him after the events of 1931? There were so many holes in that theory. Um, and the other, I mean, the evidence pointed in a different direction. Christodoulou stated that he had been a communist, but that, had, but that he had fallen out with them. And this was confirmed by other witnesses. Um, he had already been found guilty of the attempted murder, another assassination, which he had been paid to do. Um, in 1934, uh, although that attempt uh, was, ha did happen after the Triandafilidis one, that one, uh, they picked up on that one and arrested him for it and went to trial and he was found guilty. But it was only after that they charged him with the assassination of Triandafilidis. The witnesses, uh, the, 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 particularly the witnesses around Christodoulou for the prosecution, all stated that he had been paid by Dr. Pigasiu to assassinate Triandafilidis. And Pigasiu was a leading far-right-wing figure who had been interned by the British after the assassination of Triandafilidis. So their own witnesses are pointing to this person as being the, the person who paid Christodoulou. Yet the British 
pursued a line against Christodoulou of a communist conspiracy theory. So, you know, basically the trial fell apart. Who was Evagoras Savidis? Can you tell us about him? Savidis was an interesting figure. I wasn't able to find out as much as I really wanted to about him, but he was a figure that was was able to provide some uh, corroboration that Triandafilidis was in the first instance um, in the period of 1931, calling for restraint, that he was supported by a number of leading figures. Savidis was himself a lawyer based in Famagusta. And it was very important for me to have this um, additional evidence coming from a uh, you know, uh, a third party, so to speak, that supported Triandafilidis, um, because clearly people were um, were afraid to come out and say what they really felt as well, given the vitriol against him. So Savidis is important for that reason. What were the causes of the riots of 1931 in Cyprus? Well, the, the, the causes of the riots was the impact of the Great Depression, the collapse of the agricultural economy, the fact that the demonstrations originate in rural areas, they're targeting agriculture, they're targeting uh, machinery, they're targeting warehouses, uh, and so forth and so on, mills, uh, flour mills, indicates a form of what we might call agrarian based riots. And what happens is that the political elites, the nationalist political elites, attempt to capitalize on this by um, targeting the British and trying to, um, I suppose, add a nationalist element to what really doesn't have a nationalist element, initially at least. And so they call upon the British to grant to give Cyprus to Greece, um, and this leads to the riots uh, taking on a, a different dimension. Um, we begin to see government buildings attacked, um, and as as I've stated, the burning of government house, which triggers the British um, backlash. Who was Yerotheos Kikotis? Why is he noteworthy? Kikotis is, is an interesting figure for a number of reasons. He is um, um, a monk, I suppose. He, he, he um, leaves Cyprus. He ends up establishing himself in the UK. He is the brother of a leading uh, figure in Cypriot affairs in the UK, who initially is part of the Communist Party of the UK. Um Evdoros Ioannidis, who is a very prolific writer. Uh, Evdoros in, uh, uh, later on is purged from the Communist Party of Great Britain by moves emanating from Akel in Cyprus. This is in the early 50s. Yukodivs himself is an important figure because he himself is a prominent writer, maybe not as prominent as his brother, but still nonetheless prominent. He's the 
first person to write anything substantial about the British Cypriot community in the UK. Um, he's also important because he seems to take a different position uh, from most in the church as well. Um, he seems more flexible in his um, position on, on Enosis during this period at least, um, but still a lot more work needs to be done on Gikodis, I think. What, if anything, was unique about the assassination of Trientifilidis vis-a-vis other political assassinations in the 20th century? What was unique about the assassination of Triandafilidis? Um, well, assassinations by their very nature are conspiratorial. I don't think there's anything unique necessarily about the assassination of Triandafilidis. We have assassinations elsewhere that are unresolved uh, in, in, in the same way that the assassination of Triandafilidis remains unresolved, despite my my theory. I think, however, it's it's what is unique about it is that at least at the time of writing it, I couldn't uh, I couldn't find another case like it in the British imperial world. Let's say um, there were other cases of assassination, but they didn't fit this particular example of a nationalist because the Andafilidis was. A nationalist. He believed in enosis. He just didn't believe in enosis at all costs. He believed that the only way to achieve it was by cooperation with the British. But it's only in the last, uh, not even year, less than a year, that I came across another example of um, an assassination. And re remind me of his name, the J Jewish figure whom we discussed. Um, Jacob Zahan. Yes, uh, and the similarities with that case I are just, you know, uh, I mean, no two cases are the same, but, you know, the similarities are striking, you know. Both were former nationalists. Both take um, lines that upset their former supporters, their, the people, you know, and so forth, um, and both looking to, to, to trying to achieve something through a different, I suppose, pathway. Um, both are assassinated in what I would say are very similar uh, ways, very similar sort of assassinations, uh, you know, so to speak, in broad daylight and so forth and so on, very brazen. Both were um, denied by, well, in the case of Tendafilidis, the, the, the presumed perpetrators uh, but in the case of the in the other case basically it's it they admit it's been admitted now it's that uh, that um members of the zionist movement were behind his assassination but that, that never would have been admitted to unless it was something that was pushed uh, by others later on many many decades later because that too was denied, and in that particular case as well, uh, even if there might be, you know, uh, I suppose personal reasons to that they may have disliked the Han, um, 
they weren't the reasons behind his assassination. Uh, and even if there were personal reasons to dislike Triandafilidis, whether he was, um, whether it was true that he was a womanizer or whether it was true that he may have had homosexual relations, so what? I mean, as I say, as I discuss in the book, he wasn't. He wouldn't have been the only one. Um, he 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 was. The reason why he was murdered was for political reasons. The other reasons were just, I suppose, excuses to deflect away from the political uh, motivations. But more work needs to be done on on on. I, I think on Dahan and, but also more broadly on uh, both. Assassinate on the one hand assassinations, the fact that they were assassinated, but also figures in the British imperial system who took a particular view that the best way to achieve whatever it was, independence or or whatever, some form of decolonization was through cooperation with the British. When we look at other examples like the Maltese case, that is exactly how they achieved independence. That is, that's exactly how they achieved decolonization, through their, their consistent cooperation with the British. What does your study teach us about the history of police and policing in Cyprus? Well, it teaches us that the, there's a lot more work that needs to be done on the history of policing in the British Empire and the history of policing in British colonial Cyprus. That's the first thing. The second thing to say is that it is intimately linked with, of course, the British colonial system and apparatus and bureaucracy, but also intimately linked with um, the with with the colonial uh, politics. Um, And, you know, uh, like I say, there's there's like I hint, I suppose, there is um, it's not all entirely clear the role of the police um, in the assassination of Triandafilidis, whether they whether they were um, initially or or not even at the beginning um, uh, trying to solve the case. Whether it's unclear um, they, whether they were just incompetent or whether they were deliberately doing things to prevent the um discovery of the assassin it's it's totally unclear what new insights on the history of enosis are presented in your research well the new the new insights on the history of enosis is that there were alternatives to enosis that the cypriots knew about that discussed about and basically um, the far right wing comes to reject and that dominant position is the position that Cypriots believe in that um, you know that it was always only about enosis which is clearly not the case but also that there were multiple different voices calling for different pathways to achieve enosis in the last uh, chapter, um, I or is it in the conclusion? I can't remember. Um, I talk about 
um, yeah, in the conclusion, I talk, I, I go down the path of a hypothetical um, situation. What would have, what might have happened had Triandafili this not been assassinated, and and you know, it's it's quite obvious that given the fact that there were these uh, different pathways to achieving enosis, given also that very obviously the far right wing disliked, hated, despised the idea of independence as a possible solution that clearly th these things, independence could have been something um, that was achieved by demand of the Cypriots, by a unified Cypriot demand for independence. But it was just never able to develop because of the control of the far right wing nationalists. Um, and so I think that's what, you know, and the fact that Enosis was a violent, manifested as a violent uh, political response idea to British colonialism and kept, uh, prevented Cypriots from pursuing the other uh, possibilities, which was a constitutional path, uh, potentially independence, and prevented the mass violence that we come to see in Cyprus from 1955 and on. Can you describe the mysterious deaths of Dr. Angelos Zemenidis in London in 1933 and that of Archbishop Leontios in Cyprus in 1947? Well, these, these deaths, there is some evidence. So Zemenidis was an was a interesting figure whom I've written about in, in another capacity as well. He was a leading Cypriot figure in the London, uh, prominent in uh, public life, who suddenly is assassinated, uh, I think in 1933 or 34. It's unclear who was behind the assassination, but again, there are, it, there are, it resembles the way that Randafilidis was assassinated the way he was approached in his at his home and shot. Um, it, I also show that it's quite possible that the same people who were behind, probably behind the assassination of Triantafilidis may have been behind the assassination of Zemanidis because of his anti-Enosis position. Leondios, on the other hand, as I discussed before, is assassinated or probably assassinated uh, his death is very, very suspicious. A lot of evidence to suggest that it wasn't natural, probably because the far right wing now sees an opportunity to come to the archbishopric to take over uh, the archbishopric now that um, Makarios is allowed to return to Cyprus. Leondios was desiring a much, much more united front to prosecute Enosis, and by that I mean he was uh, he was willing to uh, include the communists in that pro in the prosecution of Enosis, uh, and the far right wing just didn't want that at all. And so there, there's there's a great deal of evidence to suggest that they were probably behind his demise. In your perspective, how can Cypriot history in general 
and the subject matter presented in this book and monograph contribute to conceptual and theoretical debates about the character and nature of political violence? Well, the, the, that we, the nature of political violence, if we're looking at it in different places, it, there are similarities um, in terms of the way that it's conceived, the way that it's organized, the way that it's prosecuted, its character, the way that it looks like, that almost always it's the violence is aimed within to make sure that the those who supposedly belong to that group are fundamentally behind what they're trying to achieve through this violence. So I think from a theoretical context, and I mean, I teach a, a unit at uh, my university on the history of, <clears throat> excuse me, on the history of terrorism. And one of the things that, you know, clearly surprises the students is the similarities. I mean, whether it's left wing, right wing, whether it's whatever it might be, we, we see certain common similarities across all of the examples. Um, so I think that is the main, I suppose, contribution. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about the work you've engaged in since completing this project? Sure. So since completing this project and also sort of towards the end of this project, I was simultaneously working on the history of Cypriot migration to the UK and Australia, and also um, by extension looking at other Mediterranean groups as well. Um, so there's there's been several articles that I've published on on this, but also I'm just finishing my next book on this on the history of Cypriot migration to Australia, especially especially uh, the story of the arrival of um, over 750 Cypriots on the the vessel known as the Corsica, which arrived in Australia in 1952. So um, a lot of this work on migration has been about border control, has been about the policing of migrants, and therefore has also been about, on the one hand, uh, the creation of Cypriots as a suspect community. They were one of the few groups that were restricted from migrating to the UK. They were the only group, in fact, from the, in, the, in the British imperial context, restricted uh, from going to the UK despite the fact that very large numbers ended up going there, but also they were the only um, group uh, that uh, from the British Mediterranean, but also the European, let's say Mediterranean, that the Australians restricted in, in very uh, significant ways in the 50s. And part of that has to do with uh, their politics as well, particularly left-wing politics. So that's been my my main research area. And, and now, um, while I continue to work on the migration stuff, I also am moving into the history of public health. I wish you the very best in that work. It sounds phenomenal and stellar. Thank you, Ari. Appreciate it. Thank you for all the wisdom, knowledge, erudition, and detail you generously and eloquently provided in the course of today's conversation. 
Thank you, my pleasure. As we end our dialogue today, I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, signing off on the New Books in History podcast. Today I've been in dialogue with Ansrekos Varnava. We've been discussing his newly published book, Assassination in Colonial Cyprus in 1934 and the Origins of Aoka, Reading the Archives Against the Grain, published in London by Anthem Press 2021. Professor Varnava is Professor of British Imperial and Colonial History in the College of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences in Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia. Thank you wholeheartedly. Thank you.